This is The Guardian. It finally happened. Enough MPs put in their letters of no confidence in Boris Johnson and, like so many of his Tory predecessors, he faced a watershed vote. The vote in favour was 211 votes and the vote against was 148 votes. And he won. It wasn't a resounding victory, but Johnson wants us all to move on. And at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, he did his best to sound full of vim. Is that absolutely nothing and no one, uh, least of all her, is going to stop us with getting on. Uh, the no confidence vote revealed the deep divisions and lack of direction in 2022's Tory party. And you wonder, has the Prime Minister's leadership left his party staring into a huge ideological vacuum? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are David Gork, the former Conservative MP and Minister between 2010 and 2019, who I should say has direct experience of voting in at least one no-confidence vote. Just the one. Just the Just one. Just the one. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Just one more one. than most of us. And The Guardian's Deputy Political Editor, Rowena Mason. Hello to you both. Hello. Um, just to start, I should explain my uh, my absence last week and the fact I'm still pretty tired actually I spent last week which was half term walking the length of the Cumbria Way which is 70 miles long between Ulverston and Carlisle with my two kids my son James is autistic and he's brilliant and he was raising money for his autism specialist state school they're trying to build a swimming pool because autistic people find public pools quite hard to deal with sometimes and as well as raising money I must say I experienced the restorative magic of walking and not really having my phone out and all that. And um, to come back from that and crash land with another Tory crisis was quite a thing. Do either of you have experience of the restorative, magical, health-giving properties of walking? Uh, Not right at the moment because I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old. But uh, I do take them both to a a forest school playgroup. And when, when you're with preschoolers you can't really do much with your phone so I am in a bit of a restorative media Twitter blackout for those few hours and it's very enjoyable. The longer you spend at the moment in and around the House of Commons the more you need that That respite. That is true it's lovely. Well I can't compete with the 70 mile walk but now I'm a a keen walker. In over seven days it wasn't like you did it all at once. Even even so I'm impressed I can't quite compete with that but no I'm, I'm I'm a keen countryside walker so uh, in fact we moved to where we live um 20 or so years ago because we that was we discovered it was a good place for walks and that's why we moved to to the village we moved to so yeah and can carry on walking and um particularly during lockdown um couldn't have survived without without the walks i think a lot of people at the top of the conservative party at the moment could do with a bit more walking in their lives <laughs> to be honest walking away from various things anyway uh, i mentioned fundraising earlier i will give you details if you if you'd like to help my son's fundraising appeal i'll talk a bit about that at the end anyway let's talk about uh, crazy compelling events in and around parliament this week we are going to talk about what happened on monday night uh, in the in the tory vote of no confidence and all the fallout from it and then we will talk about the sort of deep politics that, that swirl around that, the state of British conservatism and the, a big question, really, whether it has run out of ideas. Let's talk about all the drama, first of all. Boris Johnson won a confidence vote on Monday night. He scraped through, arguably, um, with the votes of 211 Tory MPs with 148 votes against him. 
Um, I, I have to say, much as um, a lot of my journalism is sort of defined against Parliament, I'm a sucker for a, a, a bit of absolutely thrilling, vivid parliamentary drama, and this delivered it in spades. And all the sort of instant number crunching that went on afterwards, and I, I instantly realised with my little pocket calculator on my phone that he had got a lower percentage of support than Theresa May managed when she she came through a no-confidence vote only to be toppled some months later. I thought all of it um, inevitably was in- incredible to watch, really. Let's just recall what happened. Let's hear, first of all, from Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, who announced the result. Good evening. Uh, I can report as returning officer uh, that 359 ballots were cast, no spoiled ballots, that the vote in favour uh, of having confidence in Boris Johnson as leader was 211 votes, and the vote against was 148 votes. And therefore, I can announce that the Parliamentary Party does have confidence. Take them out of public school, but you can't take the public school out of them. Um, Rowena, you were there that night. Give me a sense of what that was like, that sort of torrid drama, to be very, very close to it. It was interesting because um, the rebels, the critics of Boris Johnson, started off the day, many of them a bit gloomy, thinking that they'd perhaps gone a little bit too early and that they'd gone over the top on the 54 letters, perhaps accidentally, and they thought that they'd have a better chance of ousting the PM, um, perhaps after the Tiverton and Wakefield by-elections, which the party's expected to lose. But as the day went on, they started to feel like they were winning round more and more people, and they felt like number 10 had been perhaps a little bit complacent. And there was a lot of surprise among Conservative MPs that Number 10 wasn't doing a more aggressive ring round, trying to trying to persuade people to vote for the PM. Why do you think that was? Um, I think they, they assumed they had a lot of people on side that they didn't. I mean, I spoke to several uh, Tory MPs who were saying... It's three o'clock, still haven't heard from my whip, still haven't heard from from number 10. They think they've got me, but they haven't. There was a sense of excitement among Conservative MPs who were critics of the PM who were sort of were discovering that there were more of them than they thought and that they, uh, they, they sort of knew who each other were a bit more because they were all sort of coming out with statements. They're being smoked out. That's interesting. I mean, it shows you that perhaps this was the start of something rather than the end of it. David, um, we heard that sort of applause and those cheers at the end. Were they performative? Essentially, a little bit. I mean, if you are on the side of the Prime Minister, I've been in the position, I was in the room when the result was announced for Theresa May in 2018, and you knew that the noise was going to be picked up. And look, if people just went, oh, that's, that's very good, that's quite nice, then, then, then I suspect the media would make a thing of it and go, well, you know, there, was a, there was a muted response. Yes. So, so, yes, you are compelled to join in. I mean, it does sound terribly silly, but, but the alternative is to sound, you know, lukewarm about the result that you actually wanted so so that's why you get this nonsense let's listen to boris johnson addressing the cabinet on tuesday morning with his big message good morning cabinet thank you all very much and very good to 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 see you all and i I think uh, thank you by the way everybody for all your good work yesterday because uh which was a very important day because uh, we're able now to draw a line under the issues that our opponents I want to talk about, and we're able to get on with talking about what I think the people in this country want us to talk about, which is what we are doing uh, to help them and to take the country forward. And that is what we're going to do. We're going to focus exclusively on that. It's very animated, umphy Boris Johnson there. 
David, what did you make of that? I mean, I don't know what else he's going to do, really. They have to talk in all these cliché terms about lines being drawn under things and the need to move on and, and so on. Yeah, that's what he has to say. And, and you yeah, know, that was all to be expected. So so I think that was you know, fair enough. And, of course, Boris Johnson wasn't going to resign because it was a bad result. He would have stayed even if he'd lost, but even if he'd won by a single vote. Now, you've been through one of these when Theresa May was the Prime Minister and you were in the Cabinet. What's it like being in the Cabinet at a time like this when it feels like the ship is listing? I mean, it does really, is a nautical term for the ship, sort of tilting from one side to the other. Um, and if you're in the Cabinet, you're having to go out and tell stories that aren't necessarily <laughs> thoroughly rooted, I'll be diplomatic, in reality. What's it like? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly traumatic. So the morning that it was announced that Theresa May faced the confidence vote, I was doing the media round that morning. I'd had a very, very heavy hint the night before that Graham Brady was going to announce that the threshold had been reached. And so, yes, I was doing a sort of tour of the TV studios. I think everybody knew what was coming. And uh, what did you say? What was the line? I think it was like, well, you know, disappointed that we've got to this stage, but you know, confident that Theresa May will win, and that you know, she she's got a difficult job. Clearly, she's got critics within her, her own party, but I'm sure the majority of my colleagues will back her. I think I probably said that. Did you believe what you were saying? Yeah, I did. I did think she was going to win, and and indeed, I was right. But uh, the, you must have been going out of your way to convey an impression that all was basically well when you knew full well it wasn't. Well, everybody knew that there was a sizable part of the parliamentary party that wanted to see her go. So the fact that we'd reached a threshold hadn't particularly changed that. Uh, and oh, you're doing it again. I'm doing it again. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm falling into that. Yeah, I'm absolutely falling into it. And, and so, yeah, I mean, everybody, you know, everybody knew it was a very, very tricky period for her and for the government. But you do try to convey a sort of sense of, you know, if, if you go on and go, oh, my God, it's a disaster. You know, that's not really what the government's looking for. The other question is what it's like to be a backbench MP in a circumstance like this. And I wonder, Rowena, what's your sense of that? What goes through backbenchers' minds when they're thinking about which side to vote on? And then also, it gives them a power that they don't usually have. You know, Suddenly the Prime Minister is weak and biddable, and they can get at least some of what they want, perhaps. So you know, suddenly they're in the spotlight. I think there's two elements probably going through MPs' minds, or this is uh, what they were telling us, they were weighing up. One of them is the sort of moral right thing to do. Do they actually believe that Boris Johnson is the right person to be leading their party in the country? And the second element is their own personal fortunes in terms of how angry their electorate is, how marginal their seat is, will they win again next time? That's what they're weighing up. And um, that's true not just for backbenchers, but for ministers. You, you see the case of the Solicitor General, Alex Chalk, who's... who's a minister, but he's not actually telling his constituents which way he voted in the contest because he knows it's a very marginal seat against the Lib Dems. He knows that if he says that he voted for the prime minister of the government in which he's a member, he'll probably not be re-elected at the next election. So he's trading this very careful line. He's very lucky to have avoided getting the sack. And with other backbenchers, the die is cast. So if they, if they publicly say that they have no confidence in the Prime Minister, it would be untenable for them to stand and say Boris Johnson should be the Prime Minister if Boris Johnson lasts until the next election. So in that uh, sense, you know, I think, their I think, bed is made. I think you, well, I don't know. I think you sort Not of under, underestimate their sense of shamelessness. I'm sure they'll <laughs> recover their confidence in him at some time. You know, he's, he'll have done a marvellous job at uh, levelling up or some such thing and they'll decide that they do have confidence in him after all if it comes to a point of an election. Now, there have been, over the last um, couple of days, 
rumblings about a possible reshuffle and uh, a bit of talk about whether uh, Boris Johnson might start withdrawing the whip from certain uh, rebellious MPs, something he's done before. David, you were one of those people, in fact. He's got form here. A little bit of a gangsterish pose, perhaps, rather than a conciliatory, now let's all pull together kind of attitude. How seriously do you think we should take that? Well, I think it's more likely that he'll he'll play it tough than he will do an emollient thing like you know, make Jeremy Hunt Chancellor of the Exchequer. Front page of the Daily Telegraph. Yeah, on I, I'm 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 skeptical about that. So I, am I. I'm happy. Yeah, I'd be happy to be proven wrong, I suppose. But um, no, and it's stuff and nonsense. That's but that, let's let he look. I think he will play it <laughs> tough. And I mean, I think there is a particular issue in terms of the legislation on the Northern Ireland Protocol. I just wonder whether he's going to sort of try and make that a big issue. And, and, and in, if you like, try to return to the formula of autumn 2019. So, so I wouldn't be altogether surprised if he starts to get rough with a few of the, a few of the rebels, on, particularly on the kind of what he would describe as the Romani, Rejoini sort of end of the party. The way he'll play it is, is you know, it's it's him against the Remainer elite, and and you know he's fighting for the national interest and protecting the union from the deal that he signed. What about the blue wall, though, David? Like that, you know, the so-called blue wall, the, the southern seats that are potentially facing Lib Dem threats. Do you think he's underestimating what could happen in those places? Because he doesn't really seem to me to to care much about those places at all, or, or care about the electoral consequence of those places. Yeah, I think he's very complacent about that. I think his focus, look, the, the pitch he has, if you like, is that he's the only one who can hold the red wall and someone like Jeremy Hunt won't be able to do it. But the risk of complacency on the blue wall, I, I, you know, I remember the conversation we had in September 2019 when a group of us went in you know, arguing against a no-deal Brexit. And Anne Milton, who represented Guildford, she said, yes, said it, look, her. if you, um, yeah, very good woman, and uh, she said, look, if you go down this route, you'll lose Guildford, to which Boris Johnson said, if we lose Guildford, we lose Guildford. But, I mean, they were talking about huge swathes of the southeast and southwest of England here, aren't we? I mean, this is electorally crucial stuff. Now, it's interesting you mentioned the Blue Wall and and places constituencies that that look or have looked rock solidly Tory that might in, if Johnson carries on going in a sort of very very Brexity hardcore direction he might lose them and there's obviously there's a there's a shining example of this potentially coming up which is the constituency of Tiverton and Honiton where there's a by-election on June 23rd the same day as there's a by-election in, in Wakefield now I wonder whether the vote of no confidence even though he's got through is a bit like the chip on a windscreen and the car carries on and then you, you, something else happens and another pebble bounces off the road and hits it and you wonder whether this is going to be the one that brings the windscreen in. So, quickly, he's in danger from both those by-elections, right? Do you think? I mean, Rowena, that they might prove to be. Yes, to some extent, but, uh, you know, and on the other hand, it's now kind of priced in that he's going to lose both of those by-elections now. Nodding, yeah. um, you know, that pe- people now expect the party to do that and because they expect it now MPs will have voted yesterday in the confidence vote knowing that the party is likely to lose both of those places so unless there is some sort of cabinet 
revolt against him, which I don't rule out. That's possible that, that cabinet ministers might decide enough's enough and and they want to move on and he's he's not turning things around quick enough. The other the other point is about the mechanism for actually getting rid of him. You'd have to change the rules of the 1922 committee. So it would have to be one of those two things. And it seems to me perhaps more likely that this could happen when something really substantial changes, which is the uh, privileges committee. So that's, and- that's, that's a, let's assume... They lo- he loses these two by elections. The car somehow carries on trundling down the road, despite the fact there's another crack in the windscreen. Then the next thing is the verdict of the Standards Committee on whether he lied to Parliament whenever that arrives. Again, David, could that finish him off? Yeah, I agree with Bruino. I think the, the, the by-elections will be another chip in the windscreen. But, the, but the, the Privileges Committee, if they find that he has misled Parliament... Um, then I think that's incredibly serious and I don't see how he gets out of that. So he has got to hope that that is not their conclusion. But, you know, the fact that he has been weakened may mean that some of the Conservative members of that committee will feel, you know, less pressured to just, you know, deliver the verdict that he wants. It may give them a little bit more independence. So I think that's the crucial moment. If he gets through that... Then, then you know maybe something unexpected will happen, but he he, he might be you know, he might be safe. Right, that brings me to a, to a, the most important question of all, really, or the most fascinating question of all, which is about whether there might be something that sets Boris Johnson apart, apart from his gender, from um, Margaret Thatcher, who was pretty much finished off really by a, by a no confidence vote, even though she won, and Theresa May similarly. You know, is it? Conceivable, it seems to me it's perfectly conceivable that he would get through these various crises as he's got through the crises that, that we've been talking about on the podcast for 100 years and he'd still be the leader at the next election and you never know, he might win it. He's still the greased piglet. It, it's possible. I, I, I think on balance, and I hope this isn't just wishful thinking, but on balance I think the Privileges Committee is really dangerous for him um, and so I think that might do for him. But is it possible he survives all the way through? Yes, it is. And and he's not going to be embarrassed or shamed into going. And you look at Margaret... Is it unique that, in that sense? Uh, yes, I think, yeah, to, to the extent to which he is shameless, if you like, that he, he, he just will plough on. Um, I, I don't think anyone else will quite do that. He, he is, you know, he, he's really hungry for the post, and that counts for a lot. You know, he, he really will scrap for it, and he'll, he, he, can, he can cope with quite a lot of pain, I think. I think there's a bit of sort of amateur psychoanalysis to be done here, which is that I think there's a part of him is terrified of failure. Certainly, if he'd been ousted um, this week, there would have been a deep sense of wounded pride that he didn't last yeah. as long as Prime Minister as yeah. Theresa May did. He only just squeaked past Gordon Brown in terms of the length of his premiership. So there, <laughs> I, but I agree, I agree with David. It, there's a sense of shamelessness and also a sort of a lack of the sort of sense of, of duty and honour that you might see in previous Prime Ministers who resigned after similar votes. But David, you've, you've been at close quarters to Boris Johnson, closer than I have and I would imagine Rowena has. That that point about somehow this might be about it's not so much about arrogance it's about an insecurity the idea that he can't cope with the idea of resigning and failure and loss and having you know being seen to be a prime minister who didn't cut the mustard and that's what makes him cling on look i don't i i, I don't really know i mean i think he's he he's got a sort of you know very strong sense that he is a great man 
uh, and and he can prevail in difficult circumstances. And and the, the more that is thrown at him, the more heroic he is in surviving it. <laughs> Back to the the knight in the Holy Grail, the Monty Python film. <laughs> yeah, who limbless in the forest keeps shouting, "It's only, only a, a flesh only wound." A flesh wound. Yeah. Right, let's pause with that image for a minute. Uh, next, we're going to talk about. Whether conservatism means anything coherent anymore, what does it stand for? And if there is a vacuum at the heart of the Tory party and their politics, what that might mean for the rest of us. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, it seems to me that what the events of the last week and the week before that and the week before that tell us as much as anything else is that the Conservative Party can't settle down. The Tories seem in a state of perpetual sort of convulsion. They arguably have really since Margaret Thatcher. Now they seem confused, unlike under Margaret Thatcher, about what their party stands for. Um, and that's not helping. That that makes things very sort of volatile and weird you hear that when you see the spectacle of senior conservatives all tearing strips off each other there's been a lot of so-called blue on blue hostility over the last week um you, you won't be surprised to hear that a good example of this in my view is nadine doris you can't say repeatedly that you're not going to challenge the Prime Minister while there's a war in Ukraine and on the day Russia fires rockets into Kyiv decide that it is time for a change of leader. I'm afraid that's just not acceptable. And I don't want to talk about personalities, but I'm afraid sometimes it just has to be said. There are individuals who do believe that they who don't like Brexit, who are Remainers, who have been able to whip up a number of MPs in the party, and I'm afraid that's just not acceptable. She had a right go at Jeremy Hunt both uh, when she was doing the broadcast round and on Twitter. And I think on Twitter her language was even stronger. David, you were sort of shaking your head ruefully listening to Nadine Doris. So that tells you everything. And also there's a bigger question there of how that plays with the public, right? What they, what they think when they see that stuff. I think that might be a bit overplayed, whether it all just sort of dissolves into white noise and it's politicians being politicians. Yeah, I think that's probably right. But having said that, the point that Nadine Dorries said about the NHS not being properly prepared for the pandemic, which Keir Starmer picked up on in PMQs this week, is is a bit of a hostage to fortune. I mean, that, that, that is a gift to the Labour Party that I expect we'll hear quite a lot. But yeah, for the most part, you know, people are not watching BBC News, you know, 24 hours a day and, and picking that or Sky News, I think it was, to be fair. Um, and, and, and Or Talk and, TV. Or, or, well, I don't think anyone's currently <laughs> watching Talk TV. But um, th- th- that'll pass. But I think it is going to be a sort of fairly rancorous period in the Conservative Party, as I was sort of saying earlier, because of the personality clashes and because of the way I think the Prime Minister will react and the way that the rebels are going to have to kind of press on and and, and have another go. But arguably it will also be a, a rancorous, volatile period because they're all sort of flailing around looking for a vision, looking for some way out of this, some sort of political solidity to hang on to, and it's not there. I mean, I do wonder, beyond a leader who seems to stand for not much really apart from his own survival, what's the ideological core of the Conservative Party now? I mean, I know if you ask senior Tories, they'll probably talk about their enduring belief in the free market and the small state and all that, but that's not the reality in terms of, of what this 
government is doing. We all know about the tax burden and so on. The pandemic has forced a hand on, on huge levels of public spending, much to the discomfort of sort of more free market, small state conservative MPs. And even members of Boris Johnson's own party are starting to criticise him for the lack of direction. At PMQs on Wednesday, Keir Starmer read out this this letter, the written uh, by Jesse Norman, the MP for Hereford, which is ex- about exactly this, about what does this government and this party stand for under Boris Johnson? I've got a letter here to the Prime Minister from the Honourable Member from Hereford in South Herefordshire. He said, this is you, Prime Minister, under you, the government seems to lack a sense of mission. It has a large majority, but no long-term plan. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister's Big Plan Act is so tired that even once loyal MPs don't believe him. I think this this sense of rudderlessness and, and lack of direction um, in the Conservative Party is one of the reasons why you're seeing a lot of senior Tories coalesce around the idea of the need for tax cuts. It's like they, they're gripping onto this as something that they think... Um, both sides of the pro and anti Boris Johnson uh, MPs in the party can 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 get on side with. You talk to some Conservative MPs about this, and they they're not even really that bothered about which specific taxes you're going to cut in order to ease the cost of living. Or it's not they don't really even see it as being about the cost of living. They see it as being about a narrative and a sense of what the Conservative Party is about, and um, they they want. Johnson to sort of come up with something at least and tax cuts is the thing that they've seized on as, as can give that can give them a sense of, of purpose and and being a Tory. See levelling up was meant to be this government's defining mission there was a, a time sort of um, maybe pre-pandemic and then immediately afterwards when it was talked about a lot and people like me more foolish perhaps took that quite seriously because there was an element of the Conservative Party doing something you didn't expect it to do necessarily, maybe moving away from free market, small state ideas to being economically active. And, you know, the idea that this was what their new one seats in the so-called red wall required, that was quite an interesting bundle of stuff to get your teeth into. But it's shriveled to absolutely nothing, it seems to me. Almost nothing. Well, the problem is levelling up is really hard. Um, I mean, the, the idea, sometimes this government gives the impression that they've, they've stumbled upon this new issue. Of, of the fact that there's a bit of a disparity in the performance of a different of parts of the yeah yeah um, but yeah there's a disparity between different parts of the country in, in their economic performance and if we can if we can bring up some areas level them up with the southeast then everything will be great as if no one has ever thought of this before as if no one has ever tried no but there to was something this. to be said for the idea that you could substantially improve transport in the north of England and the Midlands, for example, right? Or you could you could concentrate on perhaps bringing um, industries that, that thus far haven't really set up shop in those places. It doesn't mean you'll solve the problem, but I can imagine how that would play out. And nothing like it is going but, to happen. But the problem, I think, from the government's perspective is all of those things take years and years and years. And if you've got a short attention span uh, and... You know, let's be honest, the Prime Minister does have a short attention span. You're not going to see... You know, I, I've it's made, shorter by the week. Well, yes, you know, I've, yes. made the, I've made the speech. Now now, now, what happens? Well, you know, it takes years of delivery. And, and, and that's not really what this government is set up to do. I mean, it's, it's difficult for most governments, don't get me wrong. You know, long-term projects are, are quite hard. But this government in particular, you know, it's not really what they're about. If you live in a three-bedroom starter home, in an archetypal sort of marginal Labour Tory seat like Swindon probably isn't a bad example. I wonder, what reason have you got to vote Conservative now? 
Um, wow, tumbleweed. Yeah, it's, it, it, you've, you've got you've got a lot of reasons to vote against the party at the moment because you have seen Boris Johnson make a mockery of the laws that he introduced uh, during the pandemic, and everybody played their part in that. It seems that people in Downing Street, including the Prime Minister, didn't. Yeah, you can't you can't see a GP unless you're very very fortunate. Dentistry's a mess. If you go to A&E, as we, there was that clip on Twitter this week of a doctor or a nurse coming out into an A&E department saying that was a, the wait for a doctor was seven and a half hours. We've currently got 170 patients in the department. That's 170, quite a few. There are 90 patients waiting to be seen at the moment. That's 90, 90 of you are still waiting to be seen. Our current wait time for a doctor is seven and a half hours. I will estimate that by the time I go home in the morning at 8 o'clock, some of you will still be here waiting for a doctor. Because the wait will get up to 12 or 13 hours. Prices are going through the roof. Wages aren't keeping up. Well, come on, David, you've been there. If I gave you a blank piece of paper, let's pretend this was a cabinet table, and said, come on, get us out of this hole, what could they do? Well, look, the problem the government has got is that they won a, a you know, big majority at the last general election with a very broad base you know, coalition of support with two messages, which was get Brexit done and stop Jeremy Corbyn. Now, Jeremy Corbyn has been stopped and Brexit has been done in a manner of speaking. Okay. The problem um, is that um, that there isn't something that unifies that coalition of support. And, you know, the Prime Minister... You know, one of his qualities, actually, is as a leader, is because you can't pin him down, because he agrees with everybody. You know, at any one particular point in time, um, that you you can hold these contradictions together. But you strip, you take Boris Johnson out of it, then the Conservative Party has to start making some choices. So there's a kind of you know Liz Truss view of what the Conservative Party should be, which is about lower taxes and deregulation. You've got Jeremy Hunt, who is a much more kind of traditional conservative and will do better with the blue wall. Yeah. Um, there isn't actually someone who I think is going to be the candidate for the red wall and the, embracing the realignment, but you've got some who will be culturally, you know, more hardline. I don't know whether Pretty Patel will run, but yeah, you've got the, you've got you know it's all about immigration and Brexit. Again. Well, and, and none of those, or ne- neither, none of those people really has a sort of broad enough politics to put or to keep that coalition together. Who might be next to lead the Conservative Party? Now, David, somewhat controversially in recent days, I think you wrote a piece for the New Statesman saying, I don't think you were expressing enthusiasm about this prospect necessarily, but you said that in all likelihood, as far as you could tell, or the most likely answer to that question is Liz Truss. Yeah, and, and mostly, you, most likely is important because I don't think anyone has got more than a 50% chance of winning. I think it's really quite an open field. Um, but the case, uh, and, and you're right to say this is more a prediction than, it, well, it's, it's, a, it's a tentative prediction, not an endorsement, uh, is that Liz Trust, one, she is hungry for the role. And, and you know, we talked about Boris Johnson being hungry for the role. I, I think it counts for a lot, you know, really determined to do it. Yeah. Um, and she's, I think, prepared to be quite transactional. Um, what do you mean by that? She'll do deals with people. Um, and, you know, so I think she'll take a position on, for example, the Northern Ireland Protocol that will go down very well with the ERG. Um, I think she's quite, you know, in, in terms of understanding the political party, she's she's quite astute. Um, 
And also, you know, when we talked about, well, what's, what's, what's conservatism for and the way the Conservative Party is sort of latching on tax cuts? Well, look, she's the one who can authentically make the argument, well, I've always been in favour of tax cuts, I've always been in favour of deregulation, I've been the voice around the Cabinet saying that for the last three years. Um, you know, I'm the one who will deliver the tax cuts you want. OK. Penny Morden is another name in the frame. I know she's got an op-ed in today's Daily Telegraph suggesting that she's on manoeuvres. Yeah, I think she's um, not not as much of a, a front runner as either Jeremy Hunt or Liz Truss, but um, she's got something to recommend her to the uh, to the electorate in this contest, which is Conservative Party members and MPs, which is that she is a um, a former Brexiteer. She's in many ways on the on the right of the party, but then again, she's quite socially liberal on on the left on cultural issues. So she's an interesting. Which is an interesting choice potentially. Okay, and then uh, sort of chances out of ten, Ben Wallace, two or three out of ten. Most. Yeah, I, I, in the end, I don't think he'll run. Okay, Tom Tugendhat. Um, I, I think he'd be a strong candidate in a, in a in a different era. Okay, so leader for, of the opposition. Okay, so like another yeah. another three or four. We haven't given Jeremy Hunt a rating. Let's give Ke- him a rating. Keir Starmer's won the election. Tom Tugendhat's your leader okay. of the opposition, probably. And Jeremy Hunt, arch remainer, metropolitan elite. Chances out of 10? He's got to be in with a chance because I think he'll win amongst the MPs. Okay. Do you think... He'll be on the ballot. In conclusion, last point, do you think that, and it seems to me this is going to be the case, for quite a long time, the likes of us are going to be gathered around tables like this talking about the Conservative Party in the context of crisis? In other words, whether it's a a listing ship or a car with a cracked windscreen or whatever other metaphor we use, it's going to carry on bouncing down the road in a very ungainly way. It's got a problem, and, and there's a similar problem with, with the Labour Party, which is at a period, if, if we are realigning, which I think we are, both the Conservatives and Labour are two broad coalitions, uh, and they're too broad to be coherent. Uh, and I think that that's sort of increasingly hard for, 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 for both parties. The birth pangs of a new politics, which has yet to arrive. And in the interim, it's going to get or carry on being very, very messy. It is It is very messy. And it has been for a long time now. I've covered politics for um, almost 10 years. And, and the last six years have been very, very rocky for both the parties. Well, long may it carry on. It's meat and drink for this podcast. Thank you so much for joining um, us today, Rowena and David. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK, wherever you get your podcasts, and even better, leave us a review, as long as it's a nice one. On a personal note, as I mentioned at the start of this week's episode, I was walking in Cumbria with my son and daughter last week in order to raise money so more autistic people can learn to swim. And if you'd like to help, you can find the link to the fundraising page in question on this podcast page. You can also have a look at my Twitter feed, John Harris 1969 This episode was produced by Natalie Katena. The music was by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. As Boris Johnson's vehicle continues to trundle down the road, we'll be back next week. This is The Guardian.